you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Welcome to The Lodestar's Mid-Summer Special. Today, we're examining the biggest stories and trends of 2023. We'll try to unravel container line strategy. We've got half-year analysis of air cargo markets, and we've got the latest on shipping regulations, carrier decarbonisation performance. We'll also be pondering what happens next. Is there any reason for peak season optimism? How many container ships are due to be delivered? And will a bear market prompt more consolidation? Joining me today are the Lodestars, Alex Lane and Charlie Bartlett, and Zenitha, Chief Analyst. It's Peter Sand. What is right now keeping demand fairly high? or should I say, keeping demand from a complete meltdown, is the fact uh, that even though we have been riding the waves of inflation, high inflation and, and much increased cost of living in Europe and North America, we have literally not seen unemployment pick up significantly. So the one factor that I keep a very close eye on right now is when we will potentially see higher unemployment rates, because that will literally mean a, a fast souring of the immediate future for a recovery. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Just before we start, a quick reminder, you can find all episodes of this podcast on all the usual platforms and on the lodestar.com, where you can follow breaking supply chain stories from around the world every day. You can contact me with any story ideas or just to tell me what you'd like us to cover a bit more on mikeking121 at gmail.com. And that's that, done and dusted, onwards and upwards, or more honestly, considering the guests who are joining me, time to get down and dirty. And those guests are in no particular order. Lodestar publisher, Alex Lenane. Hello, Alex. Hi, Mike. And my second guest is the retaining man of a million shirts, most of which explain why this podcast is audio only. I joke, I joke. It's Zenitor, Chief Analyst, Peter Sand. Hello, Peter. You're too kind, Mike. Good to see you too. And last but not least, it's the Lodestar's rising star, who's making his first appearance today, and who I know is just about as bright and breezy as anyone has ever been a day or two after a huge birthday bash. It's Lodestar's technology guru, Charlie Bartlett. Welcome, Charlie. Hardline. So, guys, starting with Alex, then Charlie, and then Peter, please. Please give me uh, three words which, for you, sum up the first six months of 2023 for our industry. And also a quick sentence explaining why you chose them. Well, Mike, I've picked uncertainty, normalization, and dull. Dull, like the weather in the UK right now. We all thought normalization would be a really nice thing. But in fact, going back so quickly into downturn, reminds you of how miserable the, the bottom of the cycle is, especially after the excitement of the last few years. No one wants rain at Wimbledon, do they? Charlie? Tense, expectant, anticlimactic. I was expecting the return to form to be like much more drastic than it appears to have been. And I'm surprised that rates have held up as long as they have. I feel like I'm in some sort of Norwegian art house movie here. <laughs> Peter, have you got anything positive for me? I only got positive stuff for you, Mike. If I were to choose only three words uh, to, to describe uh, what's uh, happening right now in container shipping industry, I would say at first capacity management, the one thing that carriers are all about uh, these days, uh, whether it's taking on board new ships 
some of them even methanol uh, fueled. But in essence, I mean, managing the inflow of so much cargo in so little time when demand is evaporating is a huge challenge. I think also the next word is perhaps two words again. It's uneven demand. We see drama into North America down by some 20% and we see growth on other trades up by double digits also. So it's very uneven the demand picture that we see in global container shipping right now. And I think the final word is perspective. Put it all into perspective because without that, you fail to understand anything. I think you turned three words into five there. Can you do water into wine as well, Peter? You just name it. Okay. As for me, what they doing, which obviously is awful English, but I'm talking about container lines. We all thought they'd be slashing capacity and the old days of rates wars had, had gone, but it really looks like that's not the case. Peter, have they learned not a jot? I think they are proving exactly what they've learned over the past decade or two, because they have seen many crises. They have seen the global financial crisis in 2008, nine. They have seen, well, a meltdown in demand also in 2015, 2016, and most recently also the crazy COVID years and now say the reset of it. So I think they have learned a lot. And I must say also that they are proving it right now also to me, expecting more, uh, say, hot or cold layups also, as we have seen before. But what they're doing instead is that they just keep on injecting capacity and sailing even slower by the day. So balancing out what would otherwise be a a bloody red freight rate environment. So they're keeping up fairly. It's not all red. Not all red. Well, we'll come back to some of those positive trades a, a bit later and scrapping rates as well. We'll have a look at what's going on there. Alex, we've also seen container lines, particularly MSC, Maersk and CMA, CGM, going into all sorts of business fueled by these massive profits from the pandemic period. What sort of half year scores would you give them for their efforts? Well, to be honest, Mike, I'm not too keen on giving actual scores for them because I'm not the most popular as it is. I'm going to talk specifically about their air, air freight arms. I think we had to put Maersk into a different category. It's been running its own airline, Star Air, which is now Maersk Air Cargo, since 1987. But in its new form, it does appear to be weathering the wheat market quite well. It's with its own integrated strategy, although, you know, to get actual real data on this is nigh impossible. The others are less certain. CMA CGM Pilots Union had a strike last week. When I checked the flight data, you can see there was less flying, but it was by no means an all-out grounding of aircraft. But CMA, I'd say, still has a bit of a problem, despite its sort of assurances earlier this year in Munich that it was very forward and neutral. One forwarder told me this week that he still believes Siva is looking to relieve him of his customers, and so he wouldn't book directly with CMA CGM Air Cargo. MSC... As ever is, is an unknown. It currently, via Atlas Air, is operating 1777. It's got three more to come. And it's in talks with Italy's Alice Cargo, which has an AOC, but I don't think it has any aircraft. But I think MSC should be perfectly capable, alongside Atlas anyway, of managing four 777s. And in terms of the other things they've bought, there's been so much spend. I think only time will tell what outcomes that will have. Peter, have you got any thoughts on this transformation of the container lines as they're sort of trying to branch out to this end-to-end supply chain service? It all looked very good when we had rampant markets, but when everyone's fighting for cargo, it looks a bit different, doesn't it? They're competing with their own customers. Without doubt, uh, this is this is probably the watershed moment that you're scouting for, Mike, here, because being in a transformation uh, 
regardless of the fact that Maersk have tried to become the global integrator for five, six, seven years now, it is right here, right now, that they need to prove the point to their customers that they can do end-to-end logistics better than the, well, all the major forwarders in the world. I still am not convinced, but I know they're definitely putting their money where their mouth is. So I think the shippers should be in for some interesting offers, more complicated ones than they normally look at when tendering. But I think they they should take advantage of, uh, of this strategy to become integrators, not only Maersk, but other players in the market as well, are offering uh, say, more advanced services going forward that looks akin to those from freight forwarders. So now is a good time to take advantage of, of those added offers by the global shippers. Alex, Air Cargo 8, what's happened so far this year and why? Well, um, if you uh, look at the TAC index, if you look at the major trade lanes on there, Asia to Europe and Asia to the US, to the US, sorry, both have seen rates fall fairly steadily from a high in January. There was a bit of a bump in March, but since then there's been a steady fall down again. The US to China has been less dramatic, but it's also declined. And transatlantic, where the bellies have really come back, is still weak. It's a mix of returning passenger capacity, weak demand, and all those shippers that source out air freight in the pandemic have very happily switched back to sea now, now that rates are so low and congestion is better, there's less disruption. And the possible boosts of a strike either in the US or Canada have now completely been dashed. So yeah, it's been, um, it's not been great. Let's put it like that. And we've seen all this passenger capacity come back in. Freighters are now getting taken out of the market. Is that right? Well, we're at that point in the market where rates are low enough and demand weak enough for older freighters to be parked because operating costs simply aren't making sense for some airlines. We're hearing that forwarders themselves have been driving down the rates to keep volumes high, which is, of course, hitting airlines. Uh, A carrier called Jet One X, an American carrier, grounded all four of its 747s this week. There's Western Global, which um, is is suffering from a whole storm of issues. But I did some sums this morning and 13 of its 21 aircraft are parked. Of those still operating, two have barely flown in the past week. So there's not much flying going on among some airlines, definitely. But as I say, at Western, there's a lot more going on. Other sources are saying that carriers are using this time to do heavy maintenance checks or they're simply just cutting frequencies a bit. Of course, once all your planes are on the ground, you're screwed, really, because you need some sort of income even to park an aircraft. So there's less flying, I'd say, yes. Is there a particular story that you've covered in the first six months of the year that sort of encapsulates for you what's been going on with Air Cargo? Um, I wouldn't say this encapsulates it, I'm afraid, Mike. My favourite, and not really a favourite story, but the story I found most interesting is the Polar Air Cargo corruption story. I'm sure listeners know that a bunch of about 10 executives at Polar have been accused of taking bungs from forwarders. One forwarder admitted it was making illegal payments and tried to sue Polar because Polar stopped its business with it. That case was dismissed this week, but there's, the managers are now awaiting trial on corruption charges. And the reason I think this is important is that it will come as no surprise that some people in some airlines in some parts of the world make a little cash on the side. But what I find more remarkable about this is that it was a bit of an open secret Polar's owned and managed by DHL and Atlas Air, and I think they have a case to answer in why it went on so long and why they didn't notice or didn't act. The World Bank says corruption costs more than 2.6 trillion or 5% of global GDP. And I just, I personally think that this is a crucial story because 
corruption shouldn't be anywhere near a world-leading company like DHL or Atlas Air for that matter. But it doesn't quite encapsulate what's been going on in the market. Great story all the same, though. Charlie, another great story. Container lines have been feeling some headwinds from regulators uh, and they've got to start really thinking about this a bit more seriously. We touched on it a little bit earlier. At the start of July, you covered the latest meeting of the International Maritime Organization's Marine Environment Protection Committee, MEPC 82, its friends. Basically, it set in decarbonisation targets for shipping. There was an agreement to cut 20% of greenhouse gas emissions by 20 30 and at least 70 percent by 2040 but and i quote here only if national circumstances allow which i thought was quite interesting phrasing it was also resolved that shipping would reach and i quote again close to net zero by 2050 at the latest all feels a bit fudgy to me on the text front there charlie were there any certainties out of all these meetings very few. And I really hope your listeners can hear air quotes because there's a lot of them. So, I mean, it was a pretty tenuous hope that something better was on the way initially anyway. It's just a bit disappointing, really. I mean, at, at the end of MEPC 80, all the delegates were saying that Paris Accord was in view, but I couldn't tell you what that means, really. And in terms of what the Paris Accord would mean for shipping emissions, mid 40% reduction by 2030 and 89% reduction by 2040, which is obviously quite a lot more than what the IMO's targets, or rather indicative checkpoints, you can't call them targets, they fell well short. So um, it's, it's certainly an improvement on the IMO's previous uh, sort of level of ambition, which is halving emissions over 2008 levels. Frankly, people in 2008 in shipping were cracking open the champagne, or at least they were until halfway through the year anyway. So. It's a little bit marking your own homework, that. But as I said on my, in my coverage on it, my disappointment is slightly tempered by the fact that shipping is already the lowest emitting form of transport. I don't think it deserves any credit for that. It's just physics. But what we can say is that it would be very bad for the climate if shipping became much more costly because trucking has a very low cost of entry. It can respond very quickly to take advantage if we overdid it on penalizing ship emissions. I think uh, one of the things that tickles me a little bit, we've had some of the lines saying that they're slow steaming for the environment rather than to take capacity out of the market. And I'll come back to Peter on that in a, in a moment. But Charlie, this isn't all the IMO's fault, is it? It's the, the setup, the organizational structure of the IMO doesn't really give them a lot of enforcement power. No, well, I mean, the IMO isn't a distinct entity. We, we talk about the IMO as, as though it's a, you know, but it's, it's the sum of its parts, it's member states. So. The IMO hasn't failed as such. The global community has failed. We have failed. You, the listener, have failed. I'm joking, obviously. <laughs> you can't look at climate change at the national level, and that's what we're doing at the moment. Um, it's just not adequate because you've got the biggest proportionate emitter, emitters like US and Australia are all saying we won't do anything until China does. Well, China just threw up more offshore wind turbines than previously existed in the world. They've crisscrossed the country with electrified rail in the time it's taken Britain to dig a ditch, or some of a ditch anyway. <laughs> um, and uh, the other thing is that down the line, you're going to be looking at a situation where decarbonisation in one country is taken as a licence for other countries to emit more. So the upshot of all this is that if IMO is useless, what that really means is our framework for international cooperation is useless. 
And that's basically our only hope. So if it is useless, we need to make it better, Toronto suggests. UN bodies aren't really covering themselves in glory anywhere at the moment. They're certainly in uh, war in Europe. They're not doing a lot there. Peter, you guys at Zenita, you've been bravely trying to identify the container shipping industry's best and worst environmental performers across 13 leading trades using a carbon emissions index. You guys have been calling it naming and faming. The rest of us prefer naming and shaming. What are the key findings thus far and what sort of industry flack have you received for doing this? A fair bit, I guess. Well, without doubt, this is not a kind reading to, uh, to all of those that, uh, that operate in the market. But as you may know from, from working with Sendena for a number of uh, not only months, quarters and years now, we do our homework thoroughly. So, so obviously before naming and faming those carriers out there, we did, of course, also verify whether some of this was recognizable by uh, selected carriers out there. And I must say they, um, they gave it to us that we were, we were pretty damn close to it, what actually goes on right now in the marketplace. So without doubt, we can look back at the first quarter where we crowned Yang Ming as the emissions king being the one performing best on three of the top 13 trade lanes. That's better than anyone. We have ONE, we have HMM, and we have Evergreen also taking the top spot on two trades each. And then we have four carriers taking the top spot on one trade each. So actually, what we can see in the marketplace is that efficiency gains are there to grab on the majority of the major trades. We see speed and filling factors as being the factors behind the development here. So it's very much of essence that if carriers want to cut the carbon emissions per ton of cargo they carry, slow down and fill her up before departing. So those are key factors. If they can do that, they will also get to a low carbon footprint for all the stuff they transport from A to B. But we must also look for special traits where some carriers and some trades are not necessarily moving in the right direction. Even though the industry aims to accelerate this effort, there are still room for improvement. And, and let me uh, bring this to you also, Mike, now that we're talking about it, because we just recently made almost 50 trade lanes available on our carbon emission index. And we're just about also to uh, shed light on the performance on uh, a selection of those trades for uh, the performance of carriers in the second quarter. So watch the Senator block with more naming and faming as we move into the third quarter of the year. I got stuck there on the poetry, Peter. What did you say? Yang Ming is the emissions king. I, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They took the crown. Charlie, it's not all about operations when we look at emissions. We can also look at the construction process of vessels is also important to that footprint, isn't it? Yes, well, that's rather, that's a little outside the scope of naming and faming. And I'm a big fan of naming and faming, by the way. But one of the things that naming and faming has been very good at since Zenso started doing it is uncovering the, the places where older tonnage is being used. And the US West Coast, particularly, quite interesting because obviously you've got the Jones Act, which I'm not against the Jones Act. But in terms of tonnage, some of it's very old and the emissions data is night and day, essentially. But something I wanted to illustrate is that we don't often really talk about the environmental impact of building new ships. 
Now, I'm not a ship owner, but if you're anything like me, you drop your phone, you get a crack in the screen, it's still usable, but you get excited and you think, oh, I could buy a new phone now. Historically speaking, a lot of the time, ship owners have basically done the, almost exactly that. New legislation comes in, they rush out to a yard and order a, a new eco ship. But those ships are made of steel. If they're built in China, it's almost always virgin steel. It's welded together in a shipyard at enormous uh, carbon cost and whatnot. And uh, an interesting piece of news emerged from Hapag Lloyd and C-SPAN last week, because they, instead of doing that, they want to retrofit dozens of otherwise perfectly good ships to be able to burn methanol, which is quite good, actually. More of that, please. I mean, the thing is, we've got ship holes kind of worked out now. I'm just wondering whether we need to weld a new hole together, build a new everything every time we want to meet with some new piece of environmental legislation. Interesting. Well, I, I hope you keep covering those stories because I'd like to see how that proceeds. Alex, I'm quite interested in the media element of coverage of environmental issues, sustainability issues, decarbonization. We've both been around for probably longer than we like to think about in this industry. And it's fair to say that the analytics of those stories haven't traditionally performed particularly well in terms of readers, etc. Charlie's coverage of MEPC, though, was well-received, and the most downloaded Lodestar podcast this year was the last episode, in fact, where we focused on the challenges of rolling out sustainable aviation fuel to the aviation industry. Is this a watershed moment in terms of how seriously our industry is taking these issues as people are starting to pay a bit more attention to this sort of coverage? It's been pleasantly surprising, yeah, ag agreed. I think... Probably the first year when every airline I've spoken to has volunteered information on sustainability rather than trying to ignore it at all or show me out the door quickly before they can say anything. This year has seen significantly more progress on it and interest in sustainability than any other. I don't think there's any airlines now that haven't at least toyed with using SAF. One thing that I have noticed is a few years ago, someone developed plastic for ULDs to cover the cargo, which wasn't made of plastic. And that I thought that would be taken up immediately. But actually, it's this year I'm seeing more and more airlines significantly reduce plastic waste. And there's a lot more sustainable ground vehicles as well. But there's a very long way to go. And I don't want to be mean and call it greenwashing, but companies do make big announcements about how much they're spending. FedEx said it would spend $2 billion over the next several years on sustainability. But last year, it spent $4 billion on aviation fuel, and its capex was $6.3 billion. So $2 billion over several years isn't so much. Emirates promised $200 million over three years for R&D on sustainability. They're spending $2 billion on cabin refits. So there's a lot of talk, there's a lot more listening, and there's a bit more action, but it's still not quite enough. Heading in the right direction, at least, I guess. But yeah, we do get a lot of those releases and they sound great. But when you actually drill down into them, they're not always so fantastic as they first appear. Okay, before we start to look ahead, each of you, if you can, give me one trend company thing that you'd say has both won and lost in the first half of 23 and a single sentence to justify each judgment, or if that is way too complicated for any of you, just give me a single lesson that our industry has learned in the first half of 2023. Uh, I, I think one thing that's both won and lost in the first half of 23, that's a really hard question, by the way, Mike, I think is sentiment. So at the start of the year, there was this feeling of don't panic. 
But that feeling, don't panic, has got louder and louder and more and more frantic until it's starting to sound a bit like panic. And there must have been some sort of tipping point. Perhaps it's where load factors have just suddenly fallen just below the tipping point or rates have got lower. But yeah, I think sentiment has been both won and lost in the first half of this year. Well, I hate to sound like a broken record. I'm going to have to bring you back to emissions. Uh, but basically, I think it seems like the logistics sector is very slowly coming to terms with the fact that scope three emissions exist. I mean, coming back to what I was saying about building new ships, that's just one example. But basically, I think people are starting to say, where is all this stuff coming from? Where is all my stuff coming from? And what's the carbon cost of carrying it halfway across the world? And there seem to be a lot of trends with, well, towards near-shoring and friend-shoring and but all, all types of shoring you can possibly imagine, which might end up being positive in that respect. Allow me to call out Mediterranean Shipping Company. In the early days of 2023, they lost their long-standing partner in the 2M Alliance, but uh, they also seem to be the winner in getting on the right tracks in terms of their new strategy as the world's largest container line, adding their big ships and their capacity to the trade lanes of their future, which is not only the beating track, but some of the, uh, say, secondary traits that we're going to look at shortly. Now, let's take a look at the rest of the year and peer into 2024. Peter, the peak season, any sign of one? Not really, at least in general terms. We still see the full year performing uh, or moving containers to a lesser extent than last year. If a rule of thumb is anything to go by, at least down one percentage from what was moved last year, but in a very uneven manner. Whereas last year was boom and bust, this is a much more, say, recovery and stable year. But we are not expecting much from the peak season on the mega trades. So, so we are actually more closely watching uh, the volatility on the secondary trade lanes. So be aware of the announcement by carriers to, uh, to push up uh, GRIs as they, of course, try to convince you that there is a shortage of capacity uh, you need to book right here, right now with us. I say they are fighting against the wind here. They are operating in an environment of overcapacity. So even a solid peak season would not necessarily bring around much higher freight rates. But our expectations are for this season to be not like any other season. And it seems as if, I mean, volumes may go up a little bit, but you should not see, at least on the main trades, huge volatility on long nor short-term rates. And for any shippers listening or forwarders listening, if you hear of any really, really creative surcharges from carriers, please give me a shout because I love a surcharge in a down market. We They tend to creep in every so often. Peter, chinks of light, any for me, please? You've got uh, any trades booking those downward trends? Yeah, I think so. And speaking of MSC, I mean, they are bulking up their business from Far East into Mediterranean, for instance. So one trade that is booming right now and, and literally opening up quite a gap. If you're a European shipper, there's a $1,000 premium on, on imports uh, via Mediterranean ports as compared to uh, the North European ports when your goods arrive from the Far East. And it's mainly driven by uh, East Met imports that is uh, significantly up in the first five months of this year when we look at the uh, data uh, of imports from CTS. So that's one trait that is uh, defying uh, not only gravity, because that would be if demand wasn't there, but there's solid level of demand here 
and rates are keeping up fine. And, and the same goes literally for the trade out of Far East into uh, to South America in um, East Coast, uh, West Coast, and also Latin America, a trade that brings around three and a half million CEUs on an annual basis. And it's up by almost 18% in the first five months of this year. And, and obviously, that's a reason for that trade also to perform fairly well in the spot market where spot rates are uh, up by 50% over the past quarter. There's probably a lot of people listening to this, Peter, going, hold on, did he just say it's going to cost more to go halfway to North Europe than to go the whole way? So if you stop in the Eastern Med, that's the premium. It doesn't really make a lot of sense for anyone trying to work that out, does it? What's driving that? Is this something to do with those economies in the Eastern Med? Have you got any insight on this? I think uh, it's all down to the power of demand. Far East to North Europe is down by 6 or 7 percentage from last year. So there's literally nothing that keeps shippers from pushing down the spot rates to a level where carriers just have to bite the bullet and say, okay, we're bleeding this on this one. But demand into East Met, uh, but also West Met, is holding up very well. And that gives shippers, even though they deploy huge ships, they're capable of filling them up and, and by doing so, also uh, demanding a, a premium. So in essence, you do have these trades that stand out from the global market, uh, just as we had it during the COVID years. But now I think it's, it's perhaps even more interesting and, and more relevant to watch and analyze that market because you're absolutely right. I mean, if you could save $1,000 per box by shipping that to the port of Antwerp or, or Rotterdam in, instead of Gitao uh, Tauro or uh, perhaps Piraeus, if you can do that, huge savings if you watch the market on that. Uh, and, and obviously, our expectations are also for any normal developments like this to come to a conclusion at some point in time. So coming into the third quarter and then uh, the potential peak season, what we expect is also for a bit of this demand growth to come off. Uh, not like a complete meltdown, but at least coming down from what was a really strong March through May volumes that we saw. And by that, we should also see somewhat a narrowing gap between Met and North Europe. The global supply demand balance for container shipping, Peter, we've got a lot of vessels due to join the fleet this year and next. How do you see these new buildings being deployed exactly? Are they going to kill these, these positive markets that you're talking about now, aren't they? Well, we actually just passed two records in the world of uh, container shipping deliveries. One was the month of June in itself, with more than 300,000 TUs being delivered. And one was the second quarter in itself, more than 600,000 TUs. Uh, that is more than we have ever seen. And it's very much split between fair share, meaning approximately 40% of 17,000 TU ships and approximately 40% on the, uh, say, smaller but still ultra-large ship, those that range within 12 to 17,000 TUs. And it's actually those that I would like to hone in on because they are, you can say, the flexible behemoth. They are easier to fill up. They are approximately also, I mean, it is a fair fact, and I think Charlie can subscribe to that as well. When you look at the economies of scale, especially on fuel, there's not much gain from going from 17 to 24 as compared to going from 12 to 17. So you really reap the benefits of all of it. If you can fill her up, if you can slow steam her, or just say, go into normal circulation with a 12 to 17,000 TEU, that's the magic that you should be looking for as a carrier. And it is also, I mean, this is something carriers have been 
looking into for a while because we also see that it's a, it's the lion's share of the outstanding order book, which will be coming out of the 12 from uh, 12 to 17,000 TU in the most recent or, or in the upcoming quarters, uh, that would be. And Mike, you know me, I'm a big sports fan. And if you look at the, the delivery schedule, it looks like a very exciting stage of the Tour de France, what we see in front of us with uh, the second quarter of 2023 being like Tourmalet. And then they go down from that and then they go to an even bigger peak in the second quarter of 2024, at least that's how we make deliveries to pan out for the coming quarters. Fantastic race this year, actually. I'm thoroughly enjoying it myself. It was put to me recently that maybe for the first time ever in container shipping, carriers might start scrapping ships at industrial levels. Of, like The theory for this is this obviously will balance supply and demand, but also because of some of these new emissions regulations. Charlie, have you been speaking to people who are expecting this to happen? There's certainly plenty of expectation, but I mean, we've been going on about how it's about to happen for quite a few months now, and it doesn't seem to be happening so far. I get the sense that ship owners are sort of really wringing out that last bit of profitability from their old ships, but the indication in the last few weeks is that that strategy is basically drying up and the gains are drying up from that strategy, suggesting that some of these ships are just not long for this world. In the last couple of weeks, the big guys, they're setting their rates high and I guess they're just sort of trying to finesse it really, aren't they? But like I said before, I'd much prefer if it didn't happen, but I'd be very surprised if we managed to get to the end of this year without a serious deluge of scrap ships. Peter, are you bull or bear on scrapping? Well, when I assessed the market going into 2023, I was looking at 400,000 TUs to find their blowtorch maker before the end of the year. That does seem to be a high estimate right now because we're looking at this mid-July. We see 75,000 TEUs being demolished at this hour. So even though we are uh, keeping our hopes high for uh, that number to uh, go higher in the second half of the year, I've got to go back to a carrier's ability to manage capacity. I mean, obviously they hate parting with their ships, especially if they were named after their grandmother or anyone else. But they are definitely finding deployment for this. And I think also a bit of why we may not see 400,000 this year, but perhaps more than that next year, is of course also due to all the ships that have been signed in on long-term charter agreements. So uh, during the uh, high of the COVID years, obviously tonnage providers shied away from six to nine month agreements and basically stood their firm ground saying uh, that, okay, if you want my ship, you need to sign that for two or three years, something like that. So they have literally taken a bit of the bite out of what would otherwise be a lot of ships heading for, for demolition right now, because those ships, I mean, they are still in operation. Charter hires, high charter hires are still being paid. And that, I think, is keeping a little bit of, of the lid on to the demolition potential this year. But I don't see a way around a pickup, if not this year, then next year. Thank you, Peter. If we may delicately pivot to another market that's struggling with supply and demand balance, Air Cargo Alex, what is your view from your contacts about sentiment, which you mentioned earlier? What's the sentiment for people as we look forward to the holiday season? Is there any sign of a rebound October, November, that traditional peak season for Air Cargo? I don't know, Mike. The sentiment, I'd say, has, has got sort of more and more muted. 
or depressed as the year's gone on. So I, I don't think anyone's expecting a really significant upturn for the holiday season. Every now and again, you'll find an optimist. And there, there, are two, there are two sectors that seem to be doing okay that people keep mentioning. One is e-commerce, which they expect to continue, obviously, sort of through the Christmas period, but it's not enough on its own. And aerospace traffic has come back because passengers have come back. But two sectors is not enough to keep the industry uh, properly flying. What are people saying about things like inventory levels, inflation? We've got looming recession, possibly in the US. Parts of Europe are looking rather weak at the moment, certainly in the northern part of Europe. Obviously, there's a little war out there that we haven't really touched on much today. For any of you, really, is there more downside risk than upside risk as we look forward? I mean, I think as far as air cargo is concerned, the, the sentiment is, is really based on, on what's happening. A lot of bad things are great for air cargo, war, strikes, those sorts of things, anything disruptive. Inflation, less so. And, and when I talk to people about inventory, there's, everybody said something different. It's very confusing. Some people say that it's now being sold off cheaply, which is going to help slow the rise of inflation. Others say inventory levels are absolutely fine. There's just too much capacity. And others still think retailers are suddenly going to panic in Q4 and go, oh, we don't have enough stock and fly it in all of a sudden. So there's really mixed sentiments out there. I, I'm say one thing to watch out for is this UPS strike, which um, is currently expected to start on August the 1st, unless something happens before then. But US Forward is already warning of the potential for severe disruption. So that may make some change in the second half. Disruption to boost air cargo. What's going to boost shipping, Peter? Well, not renewed push from building those inventories. If we look at uh, retail inventory to sales ratio, they are slowly but steadily climbing up from being more or less on par in April last year at, at, at a ratio of 1.1 to sit now at 1.3 as compared to a normal level of 1.45. So obviously sales are holding up quite well. Inventory have also been building. So it's not like we see a real push, not for air cargo, not for uh, ocean uh, Great, uh, but uh, but I, I, I gotta give it to uh, to to Alex also that that I'm not that optimistic for a peak season for air freight either. Uh, we do still see uh, a global average for the spot market being say 40% above the the level of pre-pandemic levels. So there's still pretty high freight rates actually, but we're also just still considering growing capacity in the form of mostly belly capacity. And also demand still waning at a lower rate right now than, than we have seen previously in the year. But it is still a souring of the fundamental balance. So sentiment is super sour and fundamentals in the air side of our business is not really, say, pushing up uh, the, the rates either. So again, peak season, don't expect much. I would echo what Alex said there, actually. Everyone I speak to about inventory levels tells me something different. And I think... That was also reiterated when we saw a lot of the retailers come out with their Q2, Q1 financials or when they've made any forward-looking statements. Very, very mixed picture. For people, operators in our industry, after we've had these boom years, a lot of them have, are also struggling with higher costs. We've started seeing some redundancies. We, we might see a few go into the wall. Alex, what have you been making of all of this? Well, yeah, I mean, Freitas is the, the big one from this week that's announced cuts, I think it's 13% of staff. And if you look at Freitos, it's, I suppose it's ultimately the actual bellwether of the, of the market as it currently is. Its model is based on market rates and deals and number of transactions. 
So I suppose what they do is a quite good indication of what's happening. On the other hand, a lot of tech companies have fired, say, 10 to 20% of their staff this year. So it's, it's also not kind of that surprising. But I think we've reached some sort of tipping point. People have moved from a cautious optimism to a more negative outlook, I would say. I would love to put a little bit unemployment rates into perspective here, because if you continue down the road of a souring sentiment, I mean, what is right now keeping demand fairly high, or should I say keeping demand from a complete meltdown? Is the fact uh, that even though we have been riding the waves of inflation, high inflation and, and much increased cost of living in Europe and North America, we have literally not seen unemployment pick up significantly. So the one factor that I keep a very close eye on right now is when we will potentially see higher unemployment rates, because that will literally mean a fast souring of the immediate future for a recovery. If we see higher inflation rates, we also see hit into to private uh, consumption. Retail sales will plummet again, and we will be in for, uh, for a longer trough than, uh, than we would otherwise be if unemployment rates stayed where they are right now. Very good point, Peter. I mean, I think what Alex said there about people laying people off, that's normally a sign that there's underlying difficulties in the freight market. And I, if I can take cast my mind back to previous boom bus cycles, when you start seeing layoffs, that you have to wonder how these companies are coping with other things when they've invested for that boom market. Because if you, it's easier to let people go than it is to let warehouses go or trucks go. So that's when you'll see some real structural issues and some of these companies might struggle. But anyway, enough of that negativity. Let's start wrapping this up. Charlie, give me a forecast for the rest of 2023 or even 2024. Any topic will do. And then maybe follow that up with a story you're looking forward to covering in the months ahead. Sure. Well, I mean, given the accuracy of Peter's predictions and the accuracies of mine, I think he's your man for rates, certainly. I'd rather not touch that with a large ball. But in terms of trends in shipping, my expectation now is that the scrapping and new build cycles will slow down in the coming years because new rules are coming in that will basically raise standards at shipyards. And that means that a lot of scrapping is going to become a lot more expensive. Up until this point, selling to cash buyers for scrapping would net ship owners a pretty penny. But it will not be unusual from this day forth to see ship owners actually paying millions of dollars to get their ships scrapped. And I think that means that they'll really need to think about whether they want to try and wring out a bit of extra profitability from those assets, even the same way as we have been seeing them doing to begin with this year. Alex, what have you got in your crystal ball for me? What story are you expected to make you bound out of bed, such as your excitement for the chase in the second half of 2023? Oh, well, excitement in the first half has been truly lacking. So, uh, um, yeah, hopefully something will happen in the second half. My crystal ball, much like the British weather, which I'm sorry to keep banging on about, but it's raining in, all, in July, sorry, is with no visibility. I've, I, it's cloudy. I can't see anything in the future. But I think what I'll be watching out for story-wise is grounded freighters, parked freighters, less utilisation, lower frequencies, possibly the odd bankruptcy among sort of the smaller operators and some fairly weak financial performances from forwarders. That's what I'm expecting to, to see. So it's, it's raining up in Northern Europe and, and it's sunny down in the Med. Sounds very much like shipping rates. Peter, let's spin you down. 
Tell me uh, when you think container lines might start pumping out some half decent profits, given that the early Q2 numbers we've seen thus far weren't exactly positive, were they? I think uh, it is fairly safe to say that uh, the motor carrier profits have already been reaped uh, in the first half of this year. Uh, we see now long-term contract rates also sign pretty close at the loss-making levels of the spot market. So without doubt, the windfall profits of uh, the COVID years are behind us now. But then again, I mean, the carriers are loaded with cash. So one thing I look very much forward to follow closer than anything in the coming half year and also into 2024 relates more to how to spend it. So uh, I keep a file, I call that the consolidation files, because, I mean, we see, yeah, Alex mentioned earlier, MSC looking at Alice Cargo. We still see MSC and Bull Ray uh, getting ever closer. Uh, a few regulatory red tapes uh, need to be uh, taken off, and then then that's a merger good to go. There is so much money to spend on chasing strategies, whether you're an integrator or you are a port-to-port -port operator and owner. So that's what I would look mostly forward to see, those extraordinary uh, mergers in, in the making. And, and D.B. Schenker, I mean, is still up for sale. Who would be the purchaser of that? Will that be DHL? Will that be, uh, well, a carrier? I'm not so sure who's the favorite or the odds-on favorite right now, but at least that would be something to look out for in, of course, addition to those odd trades that goes against the general trend, which is, I'm fair to say, downwards. We're seeing two massive years of capacity inflow. They are outstripping demand on a general scale both years with some margins. So we need to uh, watch carefully for those secondary trades like we talked about earlier here also, because there will obviously be money to be made of, decisions to be handled on the back of, uh, well, getting the best information on the markets ahead of you because there will be volatility, there will be long-term deals to strike at record low levels. And it's just a matter of, say, keeping your cool and sign with, with the right person as opposed to what Alex is expecting for the air freight. I don't see any casualties for financial reasons, at least in the ocean market for the carriers. But you may see some tonnage providers at some point in time uh, when they start running out of charter out tonnage and then they see them getting back on their books. They need to, uh, to, to do something about that in order to, uh, um, well, get through their upcoming rough. So a lot of interesting aspects to look at for 2023, Mike. And uh, look very much forward to getting my head around that in the good company of you, Alex and Charlie. Thank you, Peter. And thank you also, Alex and Charlie, for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thanks very much for having me. Good job, Mike. Good job, Alex. Good job, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenitor, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.